I'm going to read our passage today. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, it's going to be on the screens, and many of you bring your own Bibles. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, we've got them all over the room. Take one with you. Ephesians 2, 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Well, before I get into the passage itself, uh, let me just make a comment. It's kind of a side note about that very last verse I read. When I read in verse 22, in Him which is in Christ, he's referring to, in Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, that is God the Father, by the Spirit, that is God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, notice there that Paul is not uh, defending the Trinity or proving the Trinity. He is assuming the Trinity, and that is how the Bible largely treats the nature of God, the, the Trinitarian nature of God. Now, now, this is what the, the Bible teaches when you take it all together, is that there's only one God, of course, but, but that the eternal God exists eternally in three equal and eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And though we cannot put that together, uh, that, you know, God is, is, is so far beyond us, but, that, but that's God's nature. And the Bible really does not labor in proving it so much. It's just assuming it. It begins way back in the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1, when there begins to be some hints about the plurality within the Godhead. For example, we, we see plural pronouns right from the first. You know, let us make man in our image and things like that. And the rest of the Old Testament, that kind of builds more and more. We see more cases of that. And then in the New Testament, Jesus Christ shows up and he says incredible things like, I and the Father are one. Uh, John's Gospel says, in the beginning, Referring to Jesus, it says, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, that is distinct from God, and the Word was God, that is the same as God, that plurality within the unity. And this is the way the Bible treats it. And then there are, uh, throughout the New Testament, 60 references of this sort where all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in close proximity, just sort of assuming the Trinitarian nature of the Scriptures. And so, um, uh, as somebody put it this way, the whole book is Trinitarian to its core. And that does reflect the biblical perspective and let no one tell you any different. Now, that was all a side note because that's not the main part of the passage to explain the Trinitarian nature of God. And, and when we're studying or, like me, teaching the Scriptures, you always ask, what's the point of the passage? What's the purpose of the passage? And you, you dive in there, and that's what we're going to do now. And, and he begins that in, in verses 19 through 22, with three pictures of the church. In verse 19, he, he refers to the church. Now, by the way, let me just really remind you that, that, that when you think of the church or Woods Edge Community Church, Woods Edge Church is not this campus. It's not this building where we meet. Woods Edge Church is all of you people out there who are part of the church at Woods Edge. That, that's the church. 
This is just the campus or the buildings where we meet. And the church kind of scatters during the week and comes together on Sunday to worship the Lord. And, and it gives three pictures of the church, of the people of God. The first one in verse 19 is that we are, we are, are, are citizens. Now, if we're citizens, what he's assuming here is the metaphor of a kingdom. Uh, we're a kingdom together. We're Christ's kingdom. Not over territory, but over people. We're part of the kingdom of God. Secondly, at the end of verse 19, he says that you are members of God's household. Now, that implies, that assumes that we are family because we're part of the same household. So we're not only a kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Christ rules, but we're the family that Christ loves. And then thirdly, in the last few verses, he uses the metaphor of a temple. Now, that would be a temple like the Jerusalem temple built first by King Solomon, later by King uh, Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt King Herod, or Zerubbabel, and then uh, King Herod, that temple in Jerusalem. But that temple is, not, is obsolete. In fact, it doesn't exist. Uh, we now become the temple of God. So what's a temple? It's a place where God dwells. Where does God dwell today on this planet? No building, no geography place, but in the people of God. People who have trusted Christ as their Savior become the temple of God. Every one of us individually and especially collectively as we gather into local churches like this, you know, we are the dwelling place of God. We're, a, we're the kingdom that Christ rules. We're the family that Christ loves. We're the temple where Christ lives. I mean, what great dignity and, and, uh, and privilege that God's given us. We're His kingdom. We're His family. We're His dwelling place. So all of that imagery is there. Now let's just unpack those briefly. 19 says that we are citizens, but he, he, he loads that in the context, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens, fellow citizens with the saints. Now we've got some technical terms today that, that refer to certain things like, you know, folks with or without a green card and, and immigrants and uh, uh, undocumented uh, uh, Residents, we got some technical terms. These are all technical terms. So what I'm saying is in the Roman Empire that was over all that area, the city of Ephesus, one of the four great cities in the Roman Empire, these were common terms for them, just like we got some common terms. And when he said strangers, he's referring to the, to the folks that were visiting in Ephesus, and they, they were foreigners. They had no rights of citizenship. They were complete, complete foreigners. And then he says, you're no longer strangers and you're no longer aliens. Those were the residents, the foreign residents living in Ephesus. And they had some rights and privileges, but not the full rights and privileges. So he says to the believers in Ephesus, whether or not you're Roman citizens, which had great, great privileges in the day, he says, you are not in God's household. You are not strangers or aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. And that's just such honor for them. To have, man, we're, we may not be a citizen of Rome with all the privileges and rights there, but we are citizens of God's kingdom, which is far more important. And, and, and that's true for all of us. If we are Christians, if we have trusted Christ as our Savior, you're a full citizen of God's household. You're not a half citizen. You're not a second-class citizen. You're a full citizen. Now, we've got a lot of foreign-born folks here at Woods Edge, which I love. I bet we represent 50 countries here at Woods Edge. And, uh, and, and some of you are citizens, and, and many of you are not, 
But whether or not you're a citizen of the United States, you are a full citizen of the kingdom of God and a full citizen of the household of God here at Wood's Edge. Full citizens here. Now, by the way, last week, if you weren't here, if you're out of town or something, we, we talked about the, the passage there was on diversity and, and what it means to be fully one part of the body of Christ. And, and it was one of the more important messages that uh, you know, I've given for some time. So I, I just encourage you, if you were out of town last week, we, we covered the most important, powerful passage on the diversity of all kinds that we see in the body of Christ. And I just encourage you to listen to that, to be on the same page that we are as a church. Okay, we're citizens. Secondly, we are, in verse 19, we are members of the household of God. That is, we're part of the family. We are sons and daughters. We're adopted sons and daughters, just like Krista talked about for herself. We are blood-bought, bought by the blood of Jesus. We are uh, much loved, just like Krista gave uh, testimony. She's much loved by her father. We're part of a family, and we got a father, uh, and, and we're his adopted kids. Now, now, that's something, isn't it? I mean, my family, that, that means a lot. You know, I've got three, well, now I count it six kids because they're all married, and I've got four grand. They're, they're our family. That, that matters. And uh, we are part of the family of God, and that matters. You know, a few weeks, or I think it's a month ago, I made a statement that the most common term for Christians in the Bible, in the New Testament, is not the term Christian, which only occurs three times. It's not the term believers or any other term. It's the term saints. Now, the term saints is kind of an odd word for us. It's not one of those iconic folks that you uh, uh, read about, but, but it's every believer. Every person who's trusted Christ is, is a saint, is called in the New Testament, and it's really the, the Greek word for holy. It just means holy ones. We're made holy because Christ has paid for our sin, and we're set apart for Him. We're holy ones. And so I made, that the, made the statement that that's the most common term, but it's not. Uh, uh, of the regular terms, it is. But if you include all of Paul's references to the brothers in a church, that's the most common term for believers, the brothers in Philippi, in Ephesus, in Thessalonica, and on and on. Now, the, the, the term for brothers is the term Adelphoi. For example, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, comes from that, Adelphoi. And, and in just about all the cases, that term Adelphoi should be translated not as brothers, but as brothers and sisters, because just about all those cases, that's what it's referring to. But isn't it something that when God refers to His people, He refers to the brothers and sisters? You know, Will's, Will's my brother. Stacy's my sister. That you, you think about the people here. You know, you don't know most of them, but they are brothers. Krista, you don't know, but she is your sister. I mean, think about the, the great bonds that we have with one another in Jesus Christ. Eternally, and we will get to know each other, we're brothers and sisters. So, uh, the kingdom that Christ rules, the family that Christ loves, and now the temple where Christ dwells. And he elaborates this one a bit in verse 19, 20. When he says about the temple, he says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I'll explain who that is. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. By the way, when he calls us a temple here, he calls us a holy temple 
The Greek readers would, there's only one letter difference between the common everyday term for saints, holy ones, and, and this adjective right here. One's a plural noun, one's an adjective, and that's all the grammar you're going to get today. And uh, it, the point is, is that when they saw that term saints, they'd think holy ones, holy ones. We're a holy temple in the Lord. Now, he says that this temple had a foundation, and it was the apostles and prophets in the early church. That would be the 11 disciples, you know, outside Judas, Peter, James, and Paul, those guys, Peter, James, and John. And then it would be guys like Paul and a few others who were apostles. They had wide ministry, authoritative leaders as Christ's representatives. And then there were those folks with their prophetic gifts that uh, had the immediacy of revelation from God, and, and there's a handful of those. Now, today there are still folks with apostolic gifts as apostles, as prophetic gifts, but not like those. Those were foundational gifts to start the church. So that was the foundation. And in that foundation, uh, by the way, the temple would assume that we are the big rectangular stones in that temple. You know, a, a temple would have these big rectangular stones. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can see it in the wall. They were huge. They were just tons. Well, in that foundation, all those stones, there would be one key cornerstone, which would set the direction and the level and the uh, stability for everything else. And he says, Christ is the cornerstone. He alone is the, you build this thing on Jesus Christ and alone. And last week we saw how with all of the incredible diversity around the world and, and here with the body of Christ, the only thing uniting us is Jesus Christ and the gospel that he died for our sins. So he alone unites us. Now he goes on to say twice that we are, we are together in this temple. In verse 21, he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together. And then in verse 22, in him you also are being built together. So the temple is made up not of individuals scattered apart, isolated from one another, but together being part of the dwelling place of God. Now, we got a little bit of a challenge here in the United States and probably much of the West. I certainly saw it in Oregon, which was uh, the United States on steroids somewhat when we used to live in Oregon. Well, this is the problem. Much of the world, they get community. For example, from time to time, I'll speak about uh, the villages in Malawi. And if the chief comes to Christ, the whole village comes to Christ because they're a community. They get that. Here in the West, we don't get community. We get individualism. Me and, you know, mine, you know, just... You know, Jesus and me, you know, we're good. Don't really need anybody else. Uh, that is so unbiblical. Because from the, 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 the book of Genesis on to Revelation, the laboratory for knowing God is always community. Always. Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. There are no unchurched believers in the New Testament. That would be foreign. You know, that idea is kind of like there's no unbaptized believers in the New Testament. There are no unchurched believers. There are no isolated believers. They're just, they're all together in the body. And that is God's plan, that we are together uh, serving God. It's been said that there are two things that you cannot do alone. You cannot be married alone, can you? And you cannot be a Christian alone. Now, we get that first one. That's automatically, of course, Jeff, you can't be married alone, uh, husband and wife. But it ought to be just as obvious to us that we cannot be a Christian alone because we're a community, we're a body, we're a, we're a people, as these three analogies and more assume. 
So the metaphor of the temple in verse 22. By the way, Paul is writing to Ephesus. All of the background in the Old Testament is when they refer to the temple was that building in Jerusalem up on Mount Zion that the Romans completely obliterated in 70 AD. Um, well, that temple already by the time of Paul writing about 63 or 64 AD was completely obsolete because that temple was no longer the, the focused dwelling of God on the planet, but rather the people of God and especially the gathered churches around the Roman Empire spreading more and more. That's the temple. We're the temple, and that's true today. We are here at Wood's Edge, and the folks at the first service and the next service, we together are the temple of God here at Wood's Edge. And there's a bunch of them all over the world, and together we are God's dwelling place. This is where He dwells. Now, another irony is that one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Ephesus. One of the great, huge buildings was in Ephesus, which, as I've said, 250,000 people in the ancient world, tons, you know, just one of the four great cities. And they had this enormous temple of Diana or temple of Artemis. One's Greek, one's Roman. And uh, this huge temple of this pagan goddess. And he's writing to the, the small group of believers in Ephesus. And he's saying, that's not the temple of God. <laughs> You're the temple. God doesn't dwell in buildings anymore made with hands. He dwells in people that he has rescued from their sin. So we're, we are the temple. So these are the three portraits, pictures of the church so far that we, together, we're God's kingdom. That's our real kingdom. That's our real citizenship. Not U.S. citizenship or whatever country you're from, but the kingdom of God. We are God's family. I'm talking about a family. Some folks don't have a family Krista talked in her message about you and just not wanting to be kicked out of her family. We've got the family of God with the perfect Father. And then we're the, we're the temple of God where God, God dwells in us incredibly, amazingly. Now, the assumption behind this passage and throughout the book of Ephesians and throughout the, book, the New Testament is, is, is very simple and clear, is the centrality of the church in God's plan. That's just assumed. I mean, he's just saying to the church in Ephesus, you know, you're, you're God's kingdom, you're God's family, you're God's temple, the centrality of the church. Now, let me just step back and just kind of give you an overview of the whole Bible in, in three divisions, three separations. You know, this is, this is a helpful way to kind of make sense of the Bible. Three unequal parts. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, he's not dealing with a group of people together. He's just dealing with individuals. There's Adam, there's Eve, there's Seth, there's... Uh, Cain, there's Lamech, there's Methuselah, just individuals. And, and after the judgment of the Tower of Babel, God scatters people, scatters languages, and, and he says, I'm going to begin working with a, a chosen people, a, a special people, and he created it. He called Abraham, said, Abraham, you're going to be the first one of these people. They became called the Hebrews or the Jews, and they were God's chosen people through whom God fully intended to bless all the peoples of the earth. But all through the rest of the Old Testament, all through the four Gospels, uh, through Acts 1 down to Acts 2, uh, God's plan is Israel. But in Acts 2, something happens, and it becomes the church. Not just the Jews, uh, but this international, Jews, Gentiles, people of every stripe and nation and tongue, and together being the people of God. No longer the Jews, but now a third race of God's people, the church. Now, this is what happened at the end of the Gospels. Jesus died for sin, and for the first time in history, sin was really paid for. 
He rose from the grave on the third day, and he said to his disciples during the 40 days uh, after that, hey, wait in Jerusalem for, for, for me to send the power on high. He's talking about the power of the Spirit. Ten days later, they were praying in Jerusalem. God pours out the Spirit. It's recorded in Acts 2. Man, there were all kind of things that happened. Peter gets up, preaches, and God bursts the church. We're part of that. We're part of the church. No longer part of you know, God's plan. It's no longer Israel. It's no longer individuals. It's the church. That's God's plan, and there's no plan B. Now, some folks have problems with, church, with the church, and, and, and I get that because I have found in the church a lot of flawed people. And guess what? You're one of them, and I'm one of them. And to say, you know, I can't hang out with that church because they're just a bunch of hypocrites and sinners, is that not the most hypocritical thing I've ever heard? Because that's implying that I'm not a sinner and a hypocrite. But we're all flawed people. On one hand, we're sinners, but God has made us saints because the grace of God has covered our sins. He's adopted us right into the family of God, just like Krista was adopted into her family. So we're saints. We're, 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 we're together. We're a, we're a family, and, and God's plan for today is the church, is the church. Now, Jesus, when he lived, he didn't live under the church age. We're now in the age of the church. He lived in the age of Israel. And remember, at times, he'd say things like, you know, I've only been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, things like that. Well, he did say this, though. He talked prophetically about the church in Matthew 16, a very crucial passage, and he said this about it. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, the gates of hell, that's not something that moves and is attacking the church. Gates are stationary. In the ancient cities in the church, they were stationary. They were on the defense. It's not that, that hell is attacking the church. The church is, is, is moving back the forces of darkness, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, Jesus said that about the church to come in Acts 2. And about you and about me. Now think about that. With all of our flaws, with all of our, you know, hang-ups and, and neuroses and all that stuff, God uses his broken, flawed people to push back the forces of darkness around the globe in every way possible. And that's where the real action is on the planet. Some folks today thought the real action happened last Friday in Washington, D.C. That wasn't the real action. Some folks think that the real action is coming up in two weeks on a Sunday down in South Houston with the Super Bowl when the uh, uh, Green Bay Packers meet the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, first service, I, I, I gave a little shout out to the uh, Patriots, but Jack Brain, you know, you, you, you intervened to get, get the Steelers in there. Uh, so back to my point. Some folks think that was the action. This is coming up with the action. Friends, that's not the action. You know what God's doing on the planet? He's doing it through the likes of you and me. Small little bands of persecuted believers in China who, who've got to meet in house churches secretly and big churches in the United States and Africa and other places. All these churches, is the, that's the cutting edge of what God's doing in the world. That's where the action is. Be part of the real action. You can't do that from a distance. You can't do that in theory. You can't say, hey, oh, I'm part of the, the church, you know, kind of in theory, kind of in name only. That doesn't work. Uh, in practice, be a vital part of God's church, a local church with flawed people in it just like you and me. Be a vital part. Not a tangential part, but a vital part. The, the New Testament just assumes that. 
Douglas MacArthur. Uh, let me explain that for either those of you who were born in a foreign country or those of you who, who phased out of high school history or something. Doug, Douglas MacArthur was our leading general in the World War II in the Pacific Theater. And he's considered a little bit of a megalomaniac, uh, but a brilliant general. And he was our main general there. And he was a very controversial figure. He and Harry Truman got into it when he was really uh, leading, in, leading the country in post-World War II Japan and, and talk about him running for president. And I, uh, Truman had to fire him. And anyway, he was still a national hero. He was living in the Warwick Hotel in you know, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. He's getting older and older. A few years before he dies, he, he returns to West Point where he had gone to school, I think graduating number one in his class. Got any West Pointers here, you could tell me. Later, he was the superintendent, that is the main, the president of, of West Point. And then he went and fought in the wars and he came back before he died for a final talk. And as he was giving that speech, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. These tough cadets, you know, who wouldn't, you know, dare to sh- sh- show tears. They were, you know, tears were everybody. And he ends his speech with these immortal words when he said, Today marks my final roll call with you. But I want you to know that when I crossed the river, my last conscience thoughts will be the core and the core and the core, referring to the West Point cadets. My last thought, the core and the core and the core. And this week, as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, that's the the heart of Jesus for his church. That's what Jesus could say about his church. This is the one I love. This is is the one that that, uh, my my thoughts are about. The church and the church and the church. Now, do I exaggerate? I do not. Does the New Testament not refer to the church as the kingdom of God? Does it not refer to the kingdom of God? Uh, as the church, as the family of God? Does it not refer to the church as the temple, the dwelling place of God? Elsewhere, does it not refer to the church as the body of Christ? Now, this is my body right here, and that's me. And Christ says, okay, you want to know what my body is? All of you. You're my body. And, And most sacred of all, he, number of times, refers to the church as his Bride. Bride. Oh, there's deep love that I've got for those flawed people messed up. That a lot of Christians disdain. Christ said, I love them. I love them. Warts and all. Now, now right there on the third row is my bride, Gail. And I'm crazy in love with her. After 37 years, love her more than I ever have. And, And she's my bride. No one is more important to me on this planet than Gail. And that's how Christ feels about you. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've messed up, that's his heart. And when he thinks about you, the tears at times come down with his fierce love for you. There's pride. There's pride. Is the church important to Jesus? Well, by God's grace, it ought to be important to to Jesus' people then. He died for the church. And don't ever bash Christ's church or other churches around the city. It's his bride. It's his church. This assumes some things. This assumes that the church is a vital part of our lives. 
paraphrasing Augustine in the fourth century, if, if, if God is your father, then the church better be your mother. I mean, that's not kind of in theory. That's in real life. You better, you know, be a vital part of that church. Uh, in the Gospels, it, it would, the, the, this phrase occurs, that Jesus attended, the, went to the Sabbath, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, which would be their version of group worship, as was his custom. He didn't get up on Saturday mornings and say, you know, am I going to go to the synagogue or not? No, that was his custom. That's what God's people did. They gathered together on, every week to worship. In the early church, they did the same thing. They moved the, from Saturday to Sunday because that was the resurrection day. They didn't get up and, and think, you know, am I going to go to church today or not and worship? No, they just did it because that, that's what the, God's people did. They, they, they worshiped the Lord. And I just encourage you, uh, this is not kind of a tangential part of your life. You know, maybe to show up once a month or something like that. If you're in town, pre-decide. That's just kind of a no-brainer. Of course I'm going to gather with God's people with his bride, and worship the Savior. Of course, of course. By the way, for you who are active parents, got little kids, you know, the thing about little kids, they, um, they can't look into your hearts like God can. And one of the main ways that the littler kids kind of make a, uh, a decision about their parents, are they really serious about God? Is God really number one in their life? Is do they just show up at church every week? Like many, many of you do. I encourage you, if you're in town, that's already decided. I'm, I'm just a part of that. Not the, the event to, to attend, but the people you belong to. Now, I, I would say that um, uh, be a player in that. Be, be involved. You know, in two weeks, uh, the Super Bowl, we're going to have uh, 70,000 people in the stands. We're going to have hundreds of millions of people around the world, all watching 22 players on the field for 60 minutes. There are 22 players, a bunch of spectators. That's the NFL. That is not the church. The church is not a bunch of spectators. There are no spectators in the church. We're all players. We all pray, give, serve, connect with each other. Now, now what does that mean? Pray. We all pray. We need all of us praying for the church. I pray for the, the church every day, and I don't pray for these buildings. I pray for you. You love Jesus more. That we love our neighbor more. That we make disciples and, and pray, pray for all kinds of things for us. Pray for your church. It's your church. It's your family. And uh, pray for the leaders because we need it. Uh, you, you pray, you give. All through the Bible, Old Testament and the New Testament, people give as part of their worship, where they worship. Uh, it's an act of surrender, not an act of control. In the early church, we, we see that the church laid their offerings and tithes at the apostles' feet and trusted God's appointed leaders. And, and that's what... Uh, God's people did the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, many of us, like Gail and I do, we, we bring our full tithe here at, at, at our church that we're a part of and, and give some extra outside. But, but, but the, as part of being in, God, in Christ's church, that we give. We, serve, we pray, we give, we serve because we're, we're, we're players. We're, we're in the field. We're not up on the stands. Our, our, our oldest daughter, Sarah, uh, three little kids, homeschooling, very busy, but every, she takes a rotation in children's ministry in kids' zone, just kind of does, does her part, and, and there are rotations to be had in the parking lot, and, and greeting, and small groups, and in all across the church, and outside the walls of the church. It may be in the Threads homeless ministry, or something downtown with HIV and, I, and AIDS, or uh, find a place to serve. That's just God's way. You won't grow without it. And then finally, connect to some people. 
because um, you can't be church from a distance. Now, in the early church, there were 3,000 in the church in Jerusalem, and it's described as on, on Saturdays, well, Sundays, they would meet in the temple together to worship, and then during the week, they'd meet house to house, small group and large group. Now, there are five or 6,000 people at Wood's Edge, part of the family. You're not going to know all those folks, but, but, but there can be a band of them that you get to know in some way or the other. We've got all kinds of groups, classes, that sort of thing. But you cannot do the New Testament without it. Because the New Testament says, love one another, accept one another, confess your sins to one another, weep with one another, rejoice with one another. You're not even going to know each one another, everybody, but, but from house to house, smaller groups, smaller classes, you get to know each other. Friends, this is God's perspective on the church. And this is where the action is on this planet, as we're going to see one day. Be part of the action. Take your cues about life and the world, not from the newspapers and the, and the cable channels, but from God's Word. This is the body, the bride, the kingdom, the family, the temple of Jesus Christ. Stand with me. Now, friend, if you're in the room and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you're not here by accident, but, but God has, has, has drawn you. And, and all you need to do is just to open your heart to His love and grace and forgiveness, to humble yourself to admit you need a Savior. And you can just breathe a prayer right where you're standing. Jesus, come and save me. Come and save me. And He'll do it. He'll do it. It's as simple as that. Just right now, breathe a prayer. Lord God, I pray that you would help all of us who have done that to, to love the church that you died for, that you love. And we love it like you love it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.